Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. Listen carefully to God's word. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we offer our thanks to you for your word. It is true and it is trustworthy. You have granted us by faith to try it, to apply it in our lives, and we confess today the goodness of your word. Let it dwell among us richly today. Grant us your spirit to give us understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that you have revealed. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago, an unseated American, Christopher Eubanks, made it to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. He lost in that round a five-set match against the number three seed. But what was so remarkable about the achievement was not so much that it was unprecedented for an unseeded player to make it to the quarterfinals. It's actually happened a good number of times. But if you started to learn about Chris Eubanks's career, you discover that he was actually about to hang it all up. He was the 200th seeded player in the world, which is a major accomplishment in tennis, but he wasn't making progress. He was playing mostly small tournaments. In fact, when it came to Wimbledon, he had never even made it past the qualifiers. And so as a step towards his retirement, Eubanks began serving as an analyst for the tennis channel, commentating matches. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal during Wimbledon, they asked Eubanks, what exactly happened? Why the transformation? How did you go from never qualifying in this tournament to winning match after match against some of the best players in the world? What changed your game? The answer was fascinating because Eubanks was able to very quickly and succinctly explain as to how he had raised the level of his game. He explained that being a commentator, that is up in the box above the court, had changed his perspective of the game on the court. In other words, it gave him a different view and it transformed his ability to play better. He saw the game entirely different. And friends, the same thing is true for us. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 is arguing this same truth. That we have Jesus, the one who entered into the world and died on our behalf. But then he did not remain in the grave, but he was raised and he ascended into heaven. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. And that in verse 4, it's stated that we are hidden that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so this is the reality for us, that we have a seat in the heavenly places, that we have a view from above. 
and that we too now look at the game. We too now look at life, the game on the court differently. It changes our entire approach. And Colossians 3 is about that entire approach. In verses 5 through 14, Paul here details the change and the transformed life. He speaks in two ways, speaking negatively and then following that up, speaking positively. In verses 5 through 11, he speaks about what we are to put off, certain behaviors that were characterized prior to our conversion. And then in verses 12 through 14, he speaks of virtues that we are to put on, things that are now becoming of us. We're not doing this so that God will love us. But rather in verse 12, he makes it extraordinarily clear that we are doing this whole activity of putting off and putting on because we've already been loved by God, that we are his chosen ones, holy and beloved, granted a seat in the heavenly places. And it's because we have now been seated and our life is hid with Jesus that we now approach life in this different way, putting off certain things and putting on others. In verses 15 through 17, our passage for today, Paul continues to address our attitudes and demeanors and our actions that we are to put on. And significantly, these attitudes, actions, and demeanors that he addresses today concern our life together as a community, that is, as a congregation. Not the people we choose to perhaps associate weekly or regularly, but all of us who are gathered together as one community and one congregation. And so it's critical for us to ask and answer one question today. And that question is simply this. If our lives are hidden with Christ above, if we have been hidden with him, what is to characterize our life together below here on the earth in the church. Three things that we'll see here this morning. First, if you follow with me in verse 15, we see that we are to pursue peace with one another. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The exhortation is simple, that the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. It's important, though, to understand that when Paul speaks here of peace, he's not simply talking about an inward tranquility or contentment, a peace of mind, even though the word can mean that in the New Testament, in places like Philippians 4. But he lets us know what his implication and the meaning of this word here is when he speaks of being in one body that we are part of a single living organism. And so the peace that he is referring to is a peace that lives and breathes in the, in the context of social relationships. And so it's having peace amongst the relationships that we live inside. It's helpful to note that the peace of Christ has already come up in the book of Colossians. We saw it in chapter 1 in verse 20 where that peace has been won and established through Jesus Christ, the one who reigned from all eternity with the Father, who came in time, who gave himself in his atoning death and was raised and ascended to God's right hand, has made peace, Paul says, through the blood of his cross. 
But that peace has several different dimensions to it. That that peace accomplished something vertically for us. That is that we are ushered into communion with God because of what Jesus does on our behalf. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only are we reconciled to God, but he says the blood of Jesus' cross reconciles all things, that it will reconcile all things. And friends, so we have to recognize that there's not only this vertical dimension, but there's also a horizontal dimension. That yes, we are reconciled to God, but we are also reconciled to one another. And so here Paul is exhorting us to step into this reconciliation. This reconciliation that has been won. That we are to let this peace of Christ that has been won for us through his cross. We are to let let that peace rule in our hearts. It's interesting also to follow up on this word rule. What exactly does it mean? Uh, The original word rendered as rule is interesting because it means it carries the sense of being an umpire who renders a verdict in a contested situation. And so the peace of Christ is to serve as an umpire in your heart. And friends, this is helpful to get our minds around because what God wants from us in this peace that's been established by Jesus, is for peace to determine our attitudes and our actions towards one another. And to do that, especially in situations where there is contest, where there is conflict, where there is difficulty. Peace is to be the decisive factor in our dealings with one another, that we are to allow it to serve as that controlling feature, rendering verdict in situations of conflict. Now, after 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've never witnessed a conflict in the church. (laughs) Never been part of one, never seen it play out. Two main styles of approaching conflict, and this will sound simplistic, and it's because it really is fairly simple. Those styles of conflict can be characterized by two animals, the porcupine and the tortoise. One pokes and the other hides. Neither is particularly godly, and neither one deserves the banner of righteousness. The porcupine will claim that he does deserve the banner of righteousness because he's simply being honest, getting the truth out. The tortoise will claim that he deserves the banner of Righteousness, because he doesn't offend anyone. He's seeking just to be a peacemaker. The porcupine is typically defensive and aggressive, full of accusations and blame. The tortoise is defensive and avoidant, concerned with appearances, and tends to grow bitter. And this is where Paul's word to us is really helpful. Wherever we fall between these two poles, between the one who pokes or the one who hides. There's many positions in between, and sometimes we can play both. But it's helpful wherever we are on that spectrum to reflect on God's claim 
that the peace of Jesus, the reconciliation that has been won, the reconciliation that one day in the future will bring everything in heaven and on earth together, that that peace is to rule, it's to be the umpire that governs your relationships wherever you may find yourself in those relationships. And so let the peace of Christ rule, Paul says. This is the first thing that we see about our life as a community and the implications of being hidden in Christ. Now second, in verse 16, we see that we are to edify one another in the gospel. A second command here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, at the beginning of this epistle, Paul had mentioned a phrase, the word of truth, and then he amplifies that by adding the word, the gospel. Here we have another phrase, the word of Christ, but it's referring to the same reality, that what Paul is exhorting us to dwell on richly is nothing less than the word of Christ, the word of truth, the gospel. And this gospel is the good news The good news that God has rejected our rebellion against him. It is the good news that God has done something about our decision to turn away from him. And the good news declares that Jesus comes into the world and he shares in our humanity. But he doesn't share in our sin. And he makes a righteous offering to God in our place. And that he exhausts the condemnation due to sin. But then he's raised because he is the righteous one. And he ascends and he rules over the world from God's right hand. And he intercedes for us and serves as our advocate. This is the good news of the gospel. And that this Jesus will return. And he will come to make all things right. That he will raise the dead. That he'll restore heaven and earth. That peace will characterize the entire place. And God will once again dwell with his people. This is the gospel that we are to dwell on richly. That is, that it's to be on heart and mind. It's to be the sum and the substance of conversation. And with that gospel, we are to edify and build one another up. That Paul here is not just simply saying this is a private activity, because he actually turns and says, teach and admonish one another with this. Dwell richly on the gospel, direct one another to the gospel. Let it be the center of your life together. It's to be on our lips. It's to be in our hearts. It's to be on our minds to edify and to build one another up. And we do so in every season of life. Because, friends, the word of Christ is relevant in every season of life. In seasons of loss and disappointment. Where we feel that God might have abandoned us. We need to hear the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that we are his, that despite despite all the powers of evil, that God has given his son on our behalf and that we belong to him and nothing can separate us from his love. In the midst of our own failures and our own guilt and our own shame, when we feel the weight of our own sins, 
We need the word of Christ, the assurance of the gospel that he does away with our sins. And when he says he cancels our sins, he truly means it. And we need that applied to our souls. We need it in the midst of trial and trouble. All the grief that we face in this life in the midst of a broken world. We need the word of the, co- of the gospel, the word of Jesus to be a balm to the soul. And friends, we need that word of the gospel in our own physical frailty, in decaying bodies, in our own demise. This is the word that we need. That death doesn't get the last word. That death is a step in which we are planted. And we are planted so that we will rise in glory, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. That we'll rise to newness of life and transform bodies that are made whole and new. Free from the corruption and the stain of sin and even the possibility of sin. Friend, it is, it is in all these seasons of life that we need to teach and to admonish one another. To dwell richly on the gospel. This is the sum and the substance of the Christian life and it's what we desperately need. And so there's a very practical question. What do you richly dwell on? What do you teach and admonish others in? Is something else displacing the word of the gospel from your lips and from your mind? What are you encouraging people in? It is important to note that Paul goes specifically to one particular way, a corporate manifestation in which we teach and admonish one another. Earlier in the letter, he has mentioned his own role in teaching and admonishing the church, proclaiming Christ, the teaching function that we normally think about, those reserved, that teaching function reserved for pastors and elders. He refers to it at the end of the letter, men like Epaphras and Tychicus, who were teaching the congregation and serving them. But he also says that there's a communal responsibility to teach and admonish one another. And you ask the question, how exactly does that work? He explains it with this participle phrase here, attached to the end, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, when we gather And when we come on the Lord's day and we come with one voice before God, yes, we make a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to him. But simultaneously, there is something happening in our midst. And do you see what it is? You are teaching one another and admonishing one another. You are edifying and building up and encouraging one another. And this is why it's so incredibly important that we come ready to sing from the heart. And singing from the heart doesn't mean that you get to do so silently. Singing from the heart means that it's heartfelt. It's to be verbal, it's to be vocal, it's to be expressed. It's why you are chided to participate here. Because I want you to exhort one another. I want you to admonish me. I want you to point me to Jesus. I want us to richly dwell on the gospel. All that is ours in Jesus. Because you desperately need it. I desperately need it. 
That's what we need week over week, richly dwelling on the gospel. And we do so in teaching, and we do so in song, Paul says. And so let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. He encourages us. And finally, in verse 17, we see that we are to exercise gratitude to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says that whatever we do, in word or deed, and in that phrase, he's capturing the totality of your life. He says that everything is to be done in Jesus' name. So everything we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, whether we work or whether we rest, whether we shuttle kids around or whether we go out to watch a sporting event, whatever we do, we are to do it in the name of Jesus. That is that our lives are to be a thanksgiving offering to God in and through Jesus. That the thanksgiving is to ascend in and through Jesus' name as we enjoy life in this world and all of God's good gifts. This is what we're exhorted to do here, a life of gratitude, recognizing all of God's benevolence, all of God's kindness, all of his goodness that floods our lives. You'll also note that thanksgiving is not just mentioned in this final verse, in verse 17. And if we were to understand what Paul encourages in the Christian life, we have to grab hold of this theme. Because in verse 15, after being exhorted to be at peace, he says, and be thankful. And then in verse 16, when we are exhorted to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we are told to do so with thankfulness in our hearts. And then we are told that in whatever we do, in word or deed, the totality of your life, how's it to be done? With thankfulness, with gratitude, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, an offering made to God. And friends, it's critical for us to recognize because when we're thankful, we tend not to be resentful. When we're thankful and recognizing all of God's goodness, we tend to sing. And when we're thankful, we orient all of life, not just something we do on Sunday morning or perhaps in reading our Bibles or something like that. All of life, everything, every corner of it is oriented to God. God has freely made us his own. He's chosen us to be his holy and beloved people. He's set us apart for himself. And so the response is one of gratitude and thanksgiving. This past week on study leave, I was reading through the scintillating, I mean sizzling reading of John Calvin on his commentary on Deuteronomy. But I ran across a passage, already meditating on Colossians 3. And he was discussing Israel's problem with thanksgiving and their struggles with gratitude. And then he shifts from speaking in the third person to speaking in the 
first person and first person plural applying it to his own congregation. And he explains how God blesses us with his goodness and that his benevolence is all around us. And the reason that he's done this and the reason that God so indulges us, he indulges us with all of his kindness in order to induce us to give thanks and to praise him. But Calvin then turns very practically and very pastorally. He says, but this indulgence by God, oftentimes, due to our own fault, encourages the opposite. That being indulged by God, rather than growing strong in thanksgiving and praise, we become indolent and we are filled with ingratitude. That we become spoiled children and that we forget that these are gifts and we begin to take them as entitlements. And so Calvin points out that this is the great benefit sometimes of suffering in the Christian life, that it reminds us of all of the good things that God doesn't deprive us. And so friends, one of our greatest struggles and one of the greatest fights that we have to make in the Christian life in the long road from Egypt to the promised land. One of the greatest struggles that we have to entertain is awakening our heart again and again, day over day, to all the goodness and the benevolence, to all the indulgence that God gives us. We live in a culture that encourages us to think that we live in scarcity. This is the way consumerism works. And we have to push back against it to see the goodness of God, to see that things aren't scarce for us, that God has been kind, that God blesses us, that God indulges us, that God shows his grace to us in all kinds of ways in creation and then especially in redemption and all that he's done for Jesus, for us through Jesus and all that he will do. And friends, it's that and it's that posture where life begins to change from cynical and bitter, from complaining and scarcity, and begins to turn into a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving filled with gratitude. It happens in song, it happens in every context and corner of our lives where we give thanks to him. And we have this life before God because he has hidden our life in Christ. He has called you his holy ones, not because of your holy record. He has called you beloved, and it's not because you're lovely. He did so freely. He has made you his own. And he's granted you this view above the court. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Friends, your victory and your peace has been won. And so now we hear what is to characterize our life together. That we're to pursue peace. We're to edify one another in the gospel, the word of Christ. And we're to exercise gratitude before God. Three simple things. Three monumentous challenges for us 
because of the ongoing corruption that lives within us. But let the beauty of the gospel overtake that corruption. Let things above in your sight from there, the view from there, overtake life below. Let it change the way you play the game. And you won't lose in the quarterfinals. You'll find your God there sufficient to supply you with everything you need. And so dwell richly on that gospel, pursue peace, and exercise gratitude. Let's ask for his help. Father, we confess all of the weakness that we bring. These commands, this claim upon our lives, that because we are seated with Jesus, our life is hidden with him, that we are to pursue peace, that we're to express gratitude, that we're to edify one another, we can find it all so challenging. But God, you have worked this in our midst, and we ask that you continue to do so. And may these things, God, be said of us as we continue to learn what it is to respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Write these things upon our heart. Forgive our sins and help us in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.